What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. listening to For the Victim, a podcast that may contain adult themes, explicit language, and graphic depictions of violence. Portions of this show may be traumatic for those under 18. Listener discretion is advised. As we've explored in our prior episodes of For the Victim, justice is often a concept that is merely that. A concept. It sounds nice in a perfect world, but in the world of a victim... Justice, in all of its shades of grey, is almost always out of reach. But every so often, out of the ashes of a tragedy, the phoenix rises. Sometimes the horrible events that victims face can be used to effect change, and sometimes that change comes in the form of a law. These victim-centered laws are often named after the family member that was harmed in some way, Inspiring change is often the greatest gift a victim, survivor, or anyone touched by trauma can ever give or receive. This series of episodes is called the My Law series, and will cover stories that, while tragic, brought about laws for the greater good. Today we will talk about Chelsea King, Amber Dubois, and Candace Moncayo. The crimes against these women were connected by one monster. But that connection also bore the creation of Chelsea's Law. For the Victim is a High Five Holly production, and I'm your host, JT. The sliding doors theory is similar to the butterfly effect theory, in that a singular decision, a seemingly minor decision that once made, can completely alter the course of your life. This idea comes to mind when reviewing Chelsea King's story. Would the course of events have turned out differently? if every decision that day was made in reverse? Unfortunately, we can never know the answer to that question. Thursday, February 25th, 2010, was a chilly, cloudy day in San Diego, California. 
It goes to show that the sun doesn't always shine in Southern California. Whether it was cloudy or sunny, Chelsea King ran. She was a runner, and so the weather wasn't as crucial as putting those miles under her feet. February 25th wasn't just different in the sense that the weather was gloomier than usual. Today was the day that Chelsea took her run at the Rancho Bernardo Community Park, which was different than her typical routine. She usually ran in Poe, but because she was going to be hosting a park cleanup event at the park that upcoming weekend, Chelsea made the fateful choice to run there instead. It was after school, and still a bit overcast and chilly. Dinner time came and went, and when Chelsea didn't arrive in time for dinner, her parents became worried. You could set your watch by Chelsea's schedule, which she followed to the T. The park is large and located nearby Lake Hodges. It would be a long run, but she was known for taking long runs each day, and that day was no different. Chelsea left school at 2 p.m., heading out for the park, and was expected home by 5.30 p.m., like she was every other day. It was starting to get dark, and no one had heard from Chelsea which was also very unlike the responsible teen. Her mom started calling around to her daughter's various friends, but no one had seen or heard from her. Her cell phone was going straight to voicemail, and this only served to concern her mom more. At 6.49 p.m., her dad was far too worried to wait any longer, so he contacted their cell phone provider, AT&T, in an attempt to try to locate her cell phone. Luck was with them, and her phone pinged near the Rancho Bernardo Park. Her dad drove there and immediately found her car parked near the tennis courts. He looked in the car window and saw that her school clothes and purse sat inside, untouched. Chelsea usually changed clothes and shoes before taking her run, so seeing the clothes wasn't a surprise but he was growing concerned that something happened to his daughter while she was out running. Thinking she may have been hurt, he contacted the local police as well as his wife, Kelly, to bring the spare car keys to the park. When Kelly got there, the police were already there, and after entering the car, they found the cell phone inside her purse in the back seat. Her dad started to walk the park trails, calling out her name, You see, Chelsea recently fainted during one of her runs, and her dad was anxious that it happened again. The sun was down by 5.43pm, and a storm was starting to roll in. If she wasn't found before the rain fell, evidence such as DNA and footprints could be washed away, along with her scent. At 7.18pm, her dad still had no luck in finding her, so he called the Poe Sheriff's Office to report his daughter missing. Listeners, I'm sure none of us ever could imagine making that type of phone call, and we pray none of you will ever have to. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department got involved from the start, and they acted immediately. 160 trained searchers and law enforcement officers began searching for Chelsea, The search parties included officials from local, state, and even federal agencies. 
there were lifeguards and dive teams called in to assist because of the proximity to the water. An underwater robot was brought in to take pictures of the bottom of the lake. Tracking dogs, horseback riders, and even people riding four-wheelers and ATVs joined in search of the park and surrounding lake area. Drones and helicopters searched by air, performing overhead searches. There was such an immediate response that it seemed nearly impossible she wouldn't be found immediately. Her sports bra, panties, and Adidas running shoes were located during the search. Despite the overwhelming efforts, Chelsea wasn't found for almost a week. On Tuesday, March 2, 2010, at 2.56 p.m., the body of Chelsea King was found on the shores of Lake Hodges in a shallow grave. She had been attacked, strangled, and raped. Her poor body was found about 10 feet away from where her Adidas shoe was located, which was a wooded area by the lake with a lot of brush nearby. Everything was sent for testing, and male DNA was retrieved from her panties. The DNA was entered into the CODIS system, which is a nationwide database containing samples to be used for criminal investigations. Shockingly, the CODIS entry had a match to a man named John Albert Gardner, whose DNA was in the system from a prior crime. Born April 9, 1979 in Culver City, California, to parents Kathy Osborne and DJ Gardner, John Gardner was a career criminal. It's ironic because his mother is a registered nurse with a master's degree in nursing, and she eventually became California's legislative chairwoman of the American Psychiatric Nurses Association. John was a big man, standing over 6 foot 2 inches and weighing 230 pounds. His criminal record includes a conviction for committing forcible lewd acts and false imprisonment of a 13-year-old, which was part of a plea agreement for a 2000 crime against a 13-year-old San Diego girl that lived next door to him. He served five to six years, and during that prison stint, he had a psychotic break and spent time in a mental facility. Between 2005 and 2008, he lived approximately 100 yards from a preschool in the San Diego area, which was a direct violation of his parole from the 2000 incident, which stated he must live at least 880 yards away from all schools. However, because he had a pre-existing lease, the corrections employee allowed him to stay there and didn't force him to move. He ended up living there for another year without anyone noticing or even checking on him. During this time, he had additional parole violations, albeit less major ones. The violations included living and being too close to a school and possession of marijuana. After obtaining the DNA match, police brought John Gardner in for questioning. He claimed ignorance of the crime or knowledge of who Chelsea was. Because of his claims of innocence, detectives were shocked when out of nowhere John made the statement, quote, I suppose you're going to point the finger at me for that Amber girl, too. Amber Dubois started the chilly, rainy morning of Friday, February 13th, 2009, much like any other. Her mom and mom's boyfriend, Dave, had already left to start their days. Her mom left at 4 o'clock a.m., 
and Dave left at 6.15 a.m. Amber ate her morning cereal and then left the house, wearing black jeans and a dark hooded sweatshirt over a white t-shirt. She was also wearing her sapphire ring. She texted her friend at 6.44 a.m. They usually walk to school together and would typically meet at a nearby intersection. Amber's friend waited as long as possible, but when she never showed up, the friend left for school. A witness later described seeing Amber walking with her hood pulled up on her sweatshirt, probably trying to avoid the drizzle-like rain that persisted. The day continued, however, and no one ever saw or heard from Amber again. It wasn't until later that afternoon when all the dots were connected. You see, a teacher from the Escondido High School tried to contact Amber's parents at 12.30 to notify them that she didn't show up for her classes. Because Amber's folks weren't home, the teacher had to leave a message, which her mom and dad didn't get until later that afternoon. When Dave arrived home and realized she wasn't there yet, he became worried. Amber was almost always home by 3.30, He specifically expected to see her that day because she was buying a lamb that she intended to raise for a farm project. Dave himself had given Amber the $200 check that morning so she could make the purchase. And then she was supposed to come home. Straight home. Amber would have never missed buying that lamb. She was bursting with excitement over this project, and she was a responsible kid. He called Amber's mom, Carrie, who in turn called Amber... She was a little concerned when the line went right to voicemail, which she reported back. Dave drove up to the school so he could look for Amber. He ran into one of her teachers instead and asked if they'd seen Amber. The teacher informed Dave that Amber wasn't in class that day. She hadn't even been at school at all, which was unlike her. At 5.47 p.m., Dave contacted the local police to report Amber missing. Her disappearance was labeled as a missing juvenile who may be at risk. The circumstances are unknown. Police spent the evening searching for Amber. Dave and Carrie walked the neighborhood, door to door, knocking away, to see if anyone had seen their daughter. Phone records show that even though the cell phones were turned off for the majority of the day, There was some activity at 2.30pm when the phone was briefly turned on for approximately 30 seconds, and then immediately turned back off. The missing persons report was starting to take a dark turn, as day turned into night, and night back into day, and there continued to be no sign of Amber. Over the first several days, nearly 180 volunteers showed up to help search, and her parents started doing interviews with the media, pleading for her return. Carrie took Amber's horse out and rode about 15 to 20 miles over land, searching for her girl. She seemed to disappear entirely, and leads turned up nothing of value. In November of 2009, her disappearance was featured on the cover of People magazine. Police and investigators followed up on over 1,200 leads from random tipsters, to psychics, and everything in between. All tips and leads took police nowhere and her case was starting to go cold. Amber's parents were extremely frustrated with the case becoming stagnant. Despite their best efforts, there simply weren't any clues or evidence to move the investigation forward. At least, 
Not until John Gardner slipped up and mentioned Amber's name during his interrogation of Chelsea King's abduction and murder. Investigators weren't completely surprised by this slip-up, however. You see, Amber's father, Mo, went to the command center at the park where Chelsea went missing on the Monday morning after her attack. He begged police to help his family with Amber's abduction, thinking the two cases could be related. Or, if nothing else, maybe more attention could be brought to his missing daughter's case. So the police took John's bait when he made that chilling statement. I suppose you're going to point the finger at me for that Amber girl, too. The police told John if he wanted to avoid the death penalty, he needed to say to them where Amber was. They pulled no punches and kept at him, and finally he confessed to killing Amber, although he couldn't tell them precisely where she was. But he said he could show them where. John led the investigators to an access road on a remote area of the Pala Indian tribal land. It was a thickly wooded area, and walking with the handcuffed man was difficult for the police. It would have been difficult even without him. During the walk, they came across a small patch of human hair, and there were still shovel marks in the dirt. Police brought in a forensic excavation team after they found the human hair. Shortly after the team arrived, they uncovered Amber's remains. Amber Dubois was finally located and brought home on March 6, 2010. Police continued their interrogation despite two confessions to murder. They asked him about his conviction from 2000 for molestation, but he insisted he was wrongfully convicted. As they continued with John, an attack on a jogger the previous December came to the mind of the investigators. The M.O.? was similar, and the victim was akin to both the kidnapping and murders John already confessed to. The victim in that case, Candace Moncayo, was a San Diego area resident, but attending college at the University of Colorado Springs. California and the Colorado Springs agencies worked together, with the Colorado Springs Department doing a composite sketch of her attacker. About five hours later, a photo lineup was sent to Candace and she immediately identified John Gardner. John was arrested on February 28th in the Del Dios area of Escondido, California, which is on the western shore of Lake Hodges. He was charged with the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Amber Dubois and Chelsea King, as well as the attempted kidnapping and rape of Candace Moncayo. Candace Moncayo was a runner. She ran daily and the morning of December 27, 2009 was no exception. She was home from college on holiday break, but that didn't stop her regiment of pounding the pavement. She was wrapping up an eight-mile run when she saw a male walking towards her. She said he appeared to be around 25 years old and 5 foot 11 inches and about 230 pounds. He had a muscular build and was cleanly shaven with brown hair and eyes. The man was wearing a blue sweater with a horizontal white stripe on it, and blue jeans. Candace was tremendous with her recollection of details, which is not an easy thing to accomplish in the face of a traumatic event. As she ran past him, he tackled her from the side, pinning her to the ground, and climbed on top of her. The man was so aggressive with her that she had bruises on her shoulders. He said he wanted her money, and she told him she didn't have any, and she started screaming for help. He told her to shut up and began to shake her violently. Candace was studying to be a teacher, and she didn't condone violence, 
but she was also the daughter of John Moncayo, who was a five-time world kickboxing champion. Candace had been practicing jiu-jitsu all of her life, and she knew precisely how to fight off her attacker. She managed to jab her elbow into his nose. Hard. He immediately cried out as blood gushed. Candace seized her moment, and she ran as fast as possible to the nearest house she could find, where she was able to call 911. Police responded, took her statement, and even got DNA from her elbow. However, further testing determined it was female DNA on the swab. The police ruled the incident an attempted robbery, although it stuck with some investigators. Candace was deeply affected by the attack and ended up in multiple counseling sessions. But despite her fear, bravery won out. Candace chose that the attack wasn't going to prevent her from living life. So the very next day, she was back out running, in the same spot. Only this time, she had the company of a pit bull that she borrowed from her sister's boyfriend to come with her. John was offered a plea deal where the death penalty was taken off the table in exchange for a guilty plea to rape and murder for Amber and Chelsea and attempting to rape Candace. He also waived his right to appeal, which would save the family's years, possibly decades of enduring multiple hearings. As the only known survivor of this monster, Candace wanted to be there for the families of Chelsea and Amber. Wanted to be present for them when they could not. But it also forced her to have to relive her trauma over and over again. On March 16th, Candace, along with Chelsea's parents and Amber's parents, appeared on Larry King Live together. And sadly, this wouldn't be the first time the unlikely trio were brought together. They still had to endure several court hearings. On April 16, 2010, John pled guilty, and although sentencing was initially set for June 1st, John wound up being sentenced on May 14th. It was an extremely emotional day, and each victim was able to give an impact statement for the judge to consider before sentencing. John's sentence was two terms of life in prison without parole for Amber and Chelsea's rape and murders and an additional 25 years to life for the assault and attempted rape against Candace. The topper was a further 24 years incarcerated in the Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. In what could be considered the most moving moment, Candace Moncayo gathered all of her strength and faced the man that tried to brutalize and murder her. She gave an incredible statement, and we will play a portion of that for you now. It's been six months since John Gardner attacked me. And some mornings, I still wake up screaming. As a runner, I'm always gloried in the peace that comes during the utter solitude of a long run. Those moments when I'm most myself and when I can revel in the silence of my own mind. And while I still run, and I will run for the rest of my life, that peace has been shattered by the actions of this man. I have spent countless hours, terrified and nauseous, sprinting like a frightened rabbit, away from the memories and the possibilities of his assault. In a single instance, this man took from me the safety and solitude of my own mind. And during every run, I fight to get it back. Every day I lace up my shoes, and relive the moments of terror, the utter conviction that I was going to die, 
and the pain and the guilt that comes of being the only survivor. And every day, after I have fought this battle, the Lord takes my hand and guides me to the safety and security of His presence. And at the end of every run, I am covered with the knowledge of God's love and His assurance that both Chelsea and Amber are now safe and at peace in a place where no one can ever harm them again. So because of this, I did not come here today to make a statement. The pain, sadness, and grief my family and I have experienced this communal, Chelsea and Amber's families have and will express our rage and anguish much better than I ever could, because their sacrifices are utterly unimaginable. And truly, there are no words to describe the depths of despair and sorrow we have all experienced because of this man. I came here today to stand as a witness for Chelsea and Amber. I came to watch as justice is served for the horrifying acts he has committed, and to stand in the place that they should have occupied. I came here today for all of the women who have ever been victims of violence, to ask with Chelsea and Amber's voices to remove this man from our world, to make us a little safer by locking him up permanently, and to finally free us from this nightmare that he has created. And finally, to ask him how he's doing. The community of Rancho Bernardo, California would never be quite the same after these tragedies. Rancho Bernardo is a community of San Diego located in Northern Hills. It is a master planned community, which means it was planned and developed and constructed on vacant land. The area is nestled among rolling hills and canyons, and it hosts an annual carnival street fair called RB Alive. Residents call the community RB for short, and it's a beloved area by all the residents there. Those same residents will always remember and honor the beautiful young women and their families that were severely impacted by the madman who did so much destruction without any true purpose. Amber Dubois was only 14 years old when she died. She was born October 25, 1994 to Mom Carrie and Dad Maurice, who was known as Mo. His parents were married when Amber was born, but divorced around seven months later. Mo lived in Orange County, and Amber spent her weekends there with her dad and weekdays with her mom and mom's boyfriend. Mo lived in Orange County, and Amber spent her weekends there with her dad and weekdays with her mom and mom's boyfriend, Dave. Carrie and Dave had a child together, making Amber a big sister to the six-year-old girl that will never get to know the wonderful big sister that was robbed from her life. Amber was gorgeous with brunette hair and light blue eyes. She was adorably freckle-faced, and she dressed like a tomboy. A free spirit, she was unlike many young girls her age. She hated shopping at the mall. She was an avid reader, enjoying the Twilight series and books about werewolves and vampires the most. Her dad affectionately called her a geeky nerd, but she was truly the light of his life. Amber was an animal lover and aspired to become an animal behavioral therapist when she grew up. She had tons of animals from guinea pigs, rats, and birds, to horses and dogs. 
She loved writing poetry and was quite good at it. Her loss is felt immensely by all those who have loved her. Chelsea King was 17 when she was killed. Born on July 1, 1992 to parents Kelly and Brent King, she lived in the Poway suburb of San Diego. She was born in San Diego, but the family moved to Naperville, Illinois for a period during her dad's job. They stayed there nearly 10 years before transferring back to California. She had a younger brother, Tyler, who while at four years younger was her best friend. She was a petite five foot five inch beauty that was incredibly athletic, running cross country for her school's team. She also played volleyball. Athletics weren't the only area in which she excelled. Chelsea was a straight A student and maintained a 4.2 GPA. She too loved to write poetry. Music was another interest, and she was an exceptional French horn player. She started playing the instrument when she was only five years old and even auditioned for the San Diego Youth Symphony, receiving a coveted spot. Chelsea was a role model for younger girls in her school and was a peer counselor at her high school. She was incredibly popular, not just among her classmates, but even the colleges she applied for, which were 11 in total, all accepted her. The King family was well known in their community, and her death stunned everyone. Despite the tragedy, some good came from it all. In September of 2010, Chelsea's law was passed. The law is a similar take on California's Three Strikes Law, but it narrows the focus to sexual crimes committed against children. Chelsea's law ensures a one-strike penalty for sex offenders against children, our most vulnerable population. The one-strike penalty means that those who commit sex crimes against children are put away for life. It includes active GPS monitoring on offenders who are convicted of felony sex crimes against children, preventing them from being around children's schools and parks. Further, the law provides for funding of victims' services, and the best part is that it enhances the state's offender evaluation process, which ensures that an offender that is too dangerous to be released is re-evaluated by at least two psychologists. Perhaps with this law in place, John Gardner would have never been free to attack at least three young women who did absolutely nothing wrong. Information on Chelsea's Law can be found on the www.chelseaslight.org website. We urge our listeners to go to the website and see all the fantastic work being done to help aid victims, especially child victims of sexual assault crimes. You see, justice should be afforded to all. The accused and the convicted are currently afforded many of the rights that the victims of most crimes are not. This imbalance of justice should not be accepted, and the scales need to be balanced to ensure justice is done for all. This special My Law series of For the Victim is brought to our listeners so we can share each of the instances where justice was done in the form of meaningful change for the better, for the victim. Hello, this is Eric Carter Landine, the host and producer of True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. We'll uncover cases such as the Toy Box Killer, 
one of the worst serial rapists and suspected serial killers in New Mexico's history. We will also discuss mysteries such as alien sightings, as well as hauntings and other weird things that happen in this area of the country. I hope you'll give me a chance and listen to True Consequences. I think you might enjoy it. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.